Hello, everyone. My name's Brett. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life. Um, and a very, uh, and I'll just say, no, you, you actually can sit down. We're not, we're not doing that today. I'm throwing everybody off. It's kind of an odd morning. Yeah, you guys can be seated. Um, I have something very important that I wanted to say to you. Merry Christmas to all of That's right. That's right. Because you guys know, don't you? It's still Christmas. Can I get an amen to that? It's still Christmas. um, In the ancient wisdom of the church's calendar, today is the fifth day of Christmas. After four days of getting birds, a partridge, a couple of doves, some calling birds, and and chickens, you're finally going to get some jewelry, right? Five it works. Uh, you do it so much that I just, they did it. They did it. I, tr- I tried it out. I tried it out. Don't worry. Don't worry. Your psychotic true love is going to go back to giving you 13 more birds before the end of the week for this year. Because you know what your home really needs walking around it? Seven swans and six geese. What? 23 birds in this song in the first week of Christmas. That's like... That's crazy. Okay, I'm done with that. I just had to get that off my chest. Strange Christmas songs aside, um, today actually is the fifth day of Christmas. I do not have any jewelry to hand out to any of you. The feast of Christmas is 12 days long, and it ends on Epiphany on January 6th. The wisdom of the church's calendar recognizes that one day is not nearly long enough to celebrate God... The mystery, God becoming one of us, one of us. We need time to meditate on, to think about this, to marinate in. Well, the technical word for it is the incarnation. That's the word that you could like, you summarize it. God has become human, like a real human, like a full human, not no like second-rate human. He's become a real, like with a human body and a human soul and human personality and human nature, according to the earliest like reflections of the, of the church, the writings and the wrestlings of the church. He's fully human in every way that we are human, and we need We need longer than just one day a year to reflect on that. What does it mean that the creator, the the, the great mystery, God, is the kind of God who's happy to become human? What does does that mean? And that's what the Feast of Christmas and and really the season of Epiphany all the way to Lent is inviting us to reflect on. Christmas says, um, you can throw it up uh, right here, Uh, Christmas says, God happily became human for humanity's gain. If you need a summary of what uh, the Christian church is saying throughout the centuries, God happily became human for humanity's gain. We need to sit with that a lifetime like we need to think about that, pray into that. The great Jewish God, Yahweh, shocked everyone with eyes to see by becoming a first century Jew. That's the, 
That is what actually unites the Old and the New Testament. That is, that is uh, the ancient Jewish scriptures and the first century Christian writings are united by this, by the strange story of promise and fulfillment. Yahweh promises to Abraham that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Jewish God, is going to make Abraham into a great nation and that through this nation, all nations, the entire world is going to be blessed because God loves, loves, loves his world. And then on page one of the Christian writings, Matthew is like connecting the dots for us, making sure that everyone realizes Yahweh has done it. This is the same God. The God of Israel has blessed the world, not because of the faithfulness of his people, but because he's faithful. And so he's become one of his own people. He's become an Israelite. The one created the world, worshipped by the Jewish people, has become a Jewish peasant to bring blessing to the entire world. That is the intimate connection between the Old and New Testaments. It is glove and hand. It is promise and fulfillment. It is wedding and consummation. It is longing and lover. That is... What the Old and New Testament, that's ha- that, it's the substance of Christmas is what we're talking about here. And so this morning, um, we have a Christmas sermon because it's the fifth day of Christmas. We got a Christmas sermon that we got to preach this morning, and we're reflecting on the substance of Christmas, that God happily became human for humanity's gain. But we're not... Um, we're not going to camp out, actually, in any of the, like, the birth narratives of, uh, that's preserved for us in the earliest Christian writings. The Christmas stories that we, we call them, uh, Luke or Matthew's Christmas story. Um, you remember those two stories, of course, don't you? Of course you do. Luke tells of shepherds that are told by singing armies in the sky, go and find a baby lying in a, in a manger in a food trough. Go and find a baby. And then Matthew, Matthew tells the story of magi from the east. Magoi, they they seem to be astrologers from Babylon. (laughs) It's what they seem to be. They follow an unusual star in the western sky to the house of a child and his teenage mother. We're familiar, hopefully we're a little familiar with these stories, even though I may have described them in like kind of unsettling, strange terms. But today, I want to um, think about the substance of Christmas. I want to reflect on it through just one. It's, I don't usually do this. I usually have like a whole like, I'm more prone to do a chapter of the Bible than I am a verse of the Bible. Um, but today, it's just one sentence from grown-up Jesus' lips that I want us to reflect on. Um, and it's found in Matthew uh, chapter 12. Would you stand for the reading of the scripture? This will be fun. Stand for the reading of the scripture. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 6. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. You may be seated. (laughs) Oh, Jesus, uh, we invite you to open our minds and our hearts and make us alive like you. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.
yeah, I'm always hesitant to reflect on like a single solitary sentence in the Bible because sentences only mean what they mean because of the sentences around them. That's the only, and so be, be wary if that's like the habit that you're hearing people use the Bible in um, because uh, sentences are meant to be read in paragraphs. A sentence without a paragraph is just a soundbite. Right, and, so, and we, we know about sound bites, right? They can be really like, that, that actually happens to be a sound bite, doesn't it? A sentence without a paragraph happens to be a sound bite. Yes. Boom, sound bite that. Um, to, but today I think it's worth the risk. I think it's worth the risk. I was just kind of burdened with like, let's just reflect on what Jesus is saying here. You're just gonna have to trust me I, that I'm not ripping this sound bite from Jesus completely out of context or making him say something that he's not. Uh, Jesus is saying the sentence, if you want to know, he's saying the sentence in response to some accusations from the religious leaders around him um, in the Jewish community about the way that he is behaving on the Sabbath. He, he um, brings up, in the verses just before this, he brings up a story about David's actions, King David, David's actions in the pre-temple tent where God met the people, called the tabernacle. And then uh, he points out, hey, you guys are complaining about what I do on the Sabbath, but the priests, they don't stop working. They don't stop doing their temple work on the Sabbath. That's the leading up to what he says right here. But then he drops like this. It's a... It's like a, a fusion bomb of a statement right here when you stop and think about it. He says, I tell you, that something greater than the temple is here. It's, it's hard to conceive of Jesus making a bigger, bolder, stronger statement. The temple in Jerusalem, and before it, the, the portable like temple tent called the tabernacle that went around in the wilderness, um, it was the center of everything in the ancient Jewish world. It's like the center of what we would, in the mo- uh, what we would, in modern vernacular, we would call economics or politics and religion, even though those things don't get like completely divided up that way in, in a lot of cultures, much less the ancient culture. Um, it's the center of all those things, economics, politics, religion. It's like Wall Street and the White House and Notre Dame like all rolled into one place. All the important stuff happened in the temple. Families would travel to the temple for three feasts each year to remember their story, who they are, past, present, and future. They would travel, Passover would be one of them. Passover, they would, told them, it told them the past. God overthrew evil and rescued them from slavery. And then the, the feast of Shavuot, or, or weeks, or Pentecost told them the present, that God is the one who provides not only the harvest, but also and like food on your table, but also like instruction, like guides you in how to live. And then the Feast of Tabernacles told them the future, that God is the one who will one day remake the world. And they watched. They watched the temple for signs of that coming future. That because they had, they'd all read 
They sat in the Jewish scriptures for so long and they knew that the coming anointed one would cleanse and rebuild the temple, freeing not just Israel, but all of humanity from oppression and evil and establish the reign of God, the creator, the good God, life as as humanity was supposed to experience it. He would establish it on the earth. The wealth and grandeur of Jerusalem's temple was the place where sin was dealt with daily and then yearly in fiery sacrifices. It was the place where pure life flowed out and would one day flow out like water in the desert. The entire design of the temple, from its golden floral details to the symbolic candle tree in its holy place to the embroidered cherubim that guard the westward way through the curtains into the most holy place. It's all designed to reflect the Garden of Eden. You can get a PhD like reading these ancient texts. People pilgrimaged to the temple. People prayed towards the temple if they lived far away. People placed their hope in the temple. Armies were rallied. Wars were fought. Blood was shed for the temple, the temple, the temple. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Maybe we could say it this way. He's saying, there's something greater than the greatest thing we glimpse here. There's something greater than the greatest thing you glimpse. And standing before us is a wandering Jewish peasant and his followers. That is something greater This man is someone we, none of us, would have had time for. Let's get real. He's a vagabond. He's an itinerant rabbi who would soon die at the hands of church and state. He was publicly executed in the most painful and shaming way possible. Superpower-sponsored terrorism killed him in the name of keeping world peace. And his most humiliating death would mirror his most humiliating birth. There's no room for this guy in his ancestral home. He was born in a barn. I guess he could leave the door open. (laughs) Somebody will get that later. His cradle was a feed box, a food trough, a manger only just now wiped clean of the slop so that an infant could lie in it. This man, between his humiliating birth and his humiliating death, this man tells us that he is greater than the great temple. Paul, actually, he's one of the earliest Christian writers. He uh, writes this just a handful of decades after Jesus' Uh, death and subsequent resurrection, he says, in Jesus, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in him, you have been brought to fullness. That's temple language, right? I mean, where does one normally look for the deity, for, for a god? Why, in the temple, of course. That's where you, that's where you look, but not any more is what the earliest Christians insisted. 
Paul was saying Jesus is God in the flesh. He is like the deity made definite, like right there. But this, if we think about this here at Christmas, if we think about this for just a minute, meditating on it, this upends everything. This Everything is upside down when we consider this. The highest one is found in the lowest place. The greatest one is found in the lousiest of places. The first, it's like Jesus knew what he was talking about or something. The first are last. And the last, they're first. The life of Jesus shows us what God is like and the kinds of places where he is. Let's get real for a second, can we? I know it's church. Um, let's get real. The feed box and the executioner's block are not where I expect to find fullness. It's not where I... I'm not alone in this, right? <laughs> They're not where we expect to find the divine life. I mean, think, reflect on it for just a second. Where are you looking for God? Where are you looking for fullness of life? Where are you looking for him to fill you up? What, what are the kinds of things that we're looking for in our lives, or in our world, for, for that matter, to reassure us that God is at work? To reassure us that we're not alone? To reassure us that there's blessing to be found and received. I can tell you where I'm typically looking. I'm looking for God in something great, something grand, something powerful, something unambiguous, something unquestionable, something undeniable. No margin for doubt at all. I'm typically looking for something loud and showy and immediate, right? That's what we're all looking for. But does any of that look like Jesus? Does any of that look like the cross? Does any of that look like the manger? The scandal of Christmas is that the place where God is found, the place where the deity is found, the place where fullness of life is found, is not high on Olympus, but down in the ordinary. God is not Zeus-like. God is Christ-like. That's the, the divine life, the, the heart of God. The life of Jesus is not just what God pretended to be like for a handful of decades in the first century. The life of Jesus shows us the life of God, what God is always like. And that means much of life, much of my life, much of your life. <laughs> We're in this together. We're looking for God in the wrong places. We're looking for God in the wrong place. I'm looking through the highlights. I'm looking, I'm trying to find a high place, a powerful place, a loud and proud and strong place. I'm searching for an unambiguous faith, unquestionable experiences, undeniable proof, and I am missing God. Because God's love 
for us, for the world, brings him to the manger muddy. We could say it this way. The manger teaches us to look low for God. The manger teaches us to look low for God. That's near actually the heart of both of the Christmas stories that we, we just reviewed a second ago. The, ma- the, the Magway, the Magi, eventually they have to tear their eyes off the heavens and they have to look lower to gaze at the child and his teenage mother. It's surprising. It's not what they expected to find. The shepherds, they, they might they, they, they might be tempted to gaze, to just stay gawking at the angels, the angel armies singing in the sky, but they have to look lower eventually and to find an infant born, born in a barn, lying in a food trough. We could say it this way. This is the heart of it this morning. We frequently miss God because we're not looking low enough. Look lower. We frequently miss God because we're, we're not looking low enough. Look lower. A few examples might be in order, and then we'll come to the table. Uh, a few days ago, it was Christmas Day, right? Uh, and, and it was Christmas Day, and all was right with my world. <laughs> I spent uh, the morning sipping on warm coffee, uh, listening to music, um, opening presents with my bride, my daughters, and my um, amazing mother-in-law, and then I, um, I spent the afternoon disassembling the girls' toddler beds um, with an Allen wrench, and, um, and then unboxing and assembling a small bunk bed. By small, it's like twin size, so it's not that small. Um, it's the girls' big present this year. I was assembling it. Again, they're very excited about it, by the way. Um, all of this disassembly was with an Allen wrench. All of it was, all the assembly was, it was like, it's amazing. You can put something together, again, with an Allen wrench. <laughs> um, this small little thing of my, I meant to bring it, but I forgot. You guys all know what an Allen wrench is. I'm the only one, anyway. Um, my wrist was rather sore at the end of the, I, um, I said, I joked that um, I have an Allen wrist from the Allen wrench. Yeah, all right, uh, anyway. I'm, that was free. Um, many... Many days of our lives are like that Christmas morning, I think. Uh, they're full of goodness, full of love, full of like tedious work sometimes. Um, but, but like at the end of the day, uh, we might have a little bit of soreness, a little bit of stiffness, but we're like grateful for it. Like this day, it was a gift. It was a gift. And I, and I didn't necessarily feel like, it, like I had a transcendent, magical experience of God during it. Um, when my head hits the pillow, that's not what I'm thinking. But on a day like Christmas Day, a few days ago, that's frequently what we experience, um, we're invited to look lower. We're invited to look beneath the goodness that we've experienced, beneath the love that we're feeling from other people, even beneath the tedious work and, a, and a, like a sore Allen wrist. Um, and we're, we're invited to recognize that we've been playing in the dirt all day, that like in the garden is God's own life that he has been sharing with us. Look lower. You, d- you don't have to have a transcendent experience of God on a day like that. You can look lower and recognize what you've been playing in all days, on our, all, all day, on a day of goodness and gratitude, every moment that you experience of love, of joy, 
peace, of patience, of kindness. Of good. We could go through the list. Every expression of loyalty or faithfulness that you might be experiencing, that is actually God meeting us. We just don't recognize it because we're looking for the temple. We're looking too high. We don't recognize the baby in the manger, the greatest who is also the lowest. Um, this actually also applies to our relationships, you know, our, us, us, together, all of us, our conversations, our interruptions, our disagreements, our, our serving one another. Um, it applies to that too. Look lower. Our, our girls are about to be four and three, and they're at a glorious age. It's a really fun age, and they talk non-stop. <laughs> They have so much to say. They have so much to ask. They are cur- like curious. They need us. They need words of affirmation. And I'm someone who um, I frequently am looking for God in stillness, in quiet, <laughs> in tranquility. And let me be clear. Let me be clear, I'm not trying to mislead. I do find him there. I do find him there. But that tranquility space can frequently become like a temple space where I say, God must be here and nowhere else. I have my ideal that becomes my idol when I cling to it and refuse to like, let it go. And so as my, like, over the last couple of days, as my girls have been bouncing and singing and laughing and crying and arguing, and as Joy and I have been playing with them and helping them and, like, correcting them, I kept hearing this again and again and again, and maybe I'm just preaching to myself this morning, but look lower, Brett. Look lower. God isn't just in my ideal space. God dwells in our relationships. That's actually what Paul's writing about in Ephesians 2, if you want to look it up later. He's saying that God is building, guess what? A temple. God's building a temple, and that temple is us together. Like, All of us in relationship, sharing the life of Jesus. And Paul, he's not just talking about like people you already have affection for, like my girls. Paul's talking about Jews and Gentiles, that people that you think should not go together, would never go together, who could never get along, who the space between them is actually, they're coming together, all of our relationships, our sorting out of disagreements, our asking each other for forgiveness when we've wronged someone, our learning from each other, our serving each other, our loving each other even when it's hard. It's messy and it's muddy and it's where God is. It's where God, don't miss it. Don't miss it. Look lower of course, um, not all of our life feels like goodness and gratitude and Christmas morning. Um, not all of our life do we feel intimately connected with one another. Frequently, we feel alone. Uh, much of our life is suffering and heartache, isn't it? 
things not working out the way they should or the way we thought they would. My uh, temperament, my, um, my personality actually gravitates to this uh, for some sick reason. Uh, show me a picturesque sunset and I'll tell you about the solar flare that may just kill us. <laughs> Knock out all the, of our electronics. Show me my girls beside themselves in laughter with their new bunk bed and I'm actually anticipating every way that they could hurt themselves and they probably will hurt themselves and we'll spend a night in the ER. Oh, hear me, I don't, think that's a good, I don't think that's a good way to be. I'm just <laughs> telling you the way I I don't know. Um, I'm repenting of that, I guess. Um, I have real trouble being present in the midst of unbridled celebration. I have real trouble because my past teaches me that bad things can happen. And they do happen. And they will happen. They will. Again despite anything I do. <laughs> like it's Bad things are going to happen. But what we can learn as we gaze at Jesus is that God is present in suffering and heartache. Jesus knows about the cruelty of the cross, doesn't he? That's the entire point. The, the darkness of the moment when all the lights go out and all you can do is cry, my God, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows about that. One theologian actually uh, writing about exactly that statement from, uh, from Jesus on the cross, he says it this way. He says, um, God is present. You can go ahead and put the slide up. Um, God, it's, um, God is present in his apparent absence is what we learn from Jesus on the cross. God is present in the forsaken so that nobody, nobody ever, nobody anywhere at any time under any circumstance is forsaken. That's where God, that's why God went there. And I return to this like thought again and again and again because not every morning is Christmas morning. Sometimes even Christmas morning isn't Christmas morning, am I right? Like, a lot of days are bad days. Like, bad. Good Friday, bad days. Darkness and sweat and tears and betrayal and confusion and pain. We do a disservice in the church when we, um, when we pretend like the, the gospel is uh, like a Hallmark movie, that it's just dripping sentimentality with no kind of... The, the gospel entrusted to the church does not deny any of life's darkness. The gospel entrusted to the church of Jesus stares unwaveringly at suffering and heartache and whispers to us, look lower. When we feel like we are sinking into the abyss, we are knee-deep in the grave. The waters are overtaking us. And how did this happen? And the universe is broken, and I'm all alone, and I can't see the heavens. The gospel whispers, God is under you. Even if you doubt, even if your faith is weak, even if our faithfulness is flailing, God is still 
faithful to us. That's the gospel. God has experienced the depths of dereliction and darkness so that no matter where we go, no matter what kind of darkness we're in, there is no place where he is not. If this is where you are this morning, I just ask you, look lower. God, God is with you. He's with you. Another theologian puts it this way. He said, um, the son of man suffered unto death, not that men might not suffer, but that their suffering might be like his and lead them up to his perfection. I don't pretend, I wish I did, I wish I had like an easy answer to heartache and suffering and Good Fridays, Um, but the, the cruelty of the cross is not a place where God is absent. The cruelty of the cross has actually become hallowed ground because God himself is there redeeming us changing us, saving us, and always, always, always lower than us. You can't see the heavens? Well, that's okay, because the heavens are beneath you, and God can see in the dark. That's the good news. We could say it this way as we're coming to the table. The bush burning is holy ground. The manger muddy is holy ground. The cross cruel is holy ground. The tomb empty is holy ground. Make no mistake, that's Easter. Tomb empty, evil vanquished, death defeated, life fully and forever alive. That's where God is taking creation. He's taking it to Easter. But in the meantime, until the renewal of all things, do not lose heart. God claims all our lives as holy ground. You have never lived an unspiritual moment. You have never made an unspiritual choice. You have never had an unspiritual relationship. Everything is spiritual. Everything is holy. Everything is sacred. And God is working through all of it to make you full of life and full of love. That's the gospel you are invited to trust it, to believe it again. We're frequently staring upward for God, which is wonderful. God is transcendent, and you will find him there. But if you can't, don't despair. God is also imminent, closer to us than we are to ourselves. Look, lower, there's someone greater than the temple, and he's always already here. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, God, we ask that you would take these words, that you would take your gospel, and that you would work them into us, And make us like Jesus. Make us like your son, O Father. Make us alive and lovers. This is our Christmas prayer. Amen.